He is risen. risen This is good news for us, and we will look at why in just a little bit. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting as a guest, welcome. We're glad you're here and that you um, made it in from uh, Heights traffic at Watson Lake. We're grateful that we're part of uh, the larger church in Prescott, and I should have put that in the email, take Willow Creek Road. It's a lesson we learn every year over and over again. Uh, when they're at Watson Lake. So uh, really, we are a simple church that's built on the beauty and, and simplicity of the gospel. If you have any questions, the best way to go about getting those answers would be uh, get coffee with myself, Anthony, or one of our elders. You can uh, email Anthony, anthony at unionaz.com. Uh, he makes jokes about not emailing him because he doesn't care. He cares about people, not complaints, I guess would probably be the most accurate thing. Anthony at UnionAZ or me, J-O-N, John at UnionAZ.org. Our website has a contact card. You can fill that out or we have them in the back. Um, Yeah, we're just rolling along. We're going to start the book of Galatians. And kids, God bless you all. We're happy you're here. And the fact that we sugared you up right before sitting through a teaching is not wise. Um, But we're going to have a good time. So I'm going to read Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Pray and see what God has for us this Easter morning. Paul writes and says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Father, as we come to your word and we remember the good news of our risen Savior, we ask that you would uh, refresh our hearts, our minds, and our lives with this magnificent truth. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. May you continue to uh, just wake our lives, our ears, our eyes up to the beauty of who you are. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. There's a few moments in life that are memorable enough where you get a piece of news that changes everything. If the news is true, everything changes. The, The one for me that's been on my mind this week comes from September of 2014. My wife and I, our two boys, went to Disneyland with the in-laws, the other in-laws, and their two kids. And it was just that time where the ages aligned perfectly and my wife created some shirts. You should see them maybe if the computer worked. There, are they working? The computer, there. So Lincoln's four, Ruby's three, Elliot's two, Parker is one. And so we go to Disneyland, and it was, like I said, September. It's sweltering hot, and my wife's acting a little bit odd in hindsight. She's wearing a sweater. It's very hot, and she's insisting on getting a picture with Mickey Mouse, of which put me immediately in a grumpy mood because nobody cares in our family about Mickey Mouse at all. (laughs) Let's go hit the rides. Let's go have fun. Why are we standing 30 minutes in a line just for a picture with Mickey Mouse? But being the great sport that I am, just, you know, okay, fine, Mickey Mouse, it is, really, beads of sweat dropping down from the face, 
Um, and, and as it's finally our time, I notice that my wife is kind of pulling a fast one, uh, takes off her sweater and gets into the picture, and this is the aftermath of it. You see what's on her belly? It's a zero. Now, some of you got it. Some of you are like, cool, she has a shirt too. That's what my father-in-law said. Oh, you got a shirt too. She's pregnant. Now, I was under the assumption that she was not pregnant. She didn't lie to me, but there were details that led me to believe she's not pregnant. She surprises all of us, me included, with this news. You're going to have a third child in your family. That was a weird day for me. The first ride we went on from that was Dumbo. There I am with Elliot. And if you zoom in a little bit more, that's me calculating everything in my life that's about to change. My wife at the time had a car that had four seat belts, and that's a problem when you have five children and live in the 2000s. If it was the 80s, it wouldn't have been a problem. Throw them all in the back, we're good. I'm thinking I am going to become a minivan guy and have fully embraced that. We got rid of all of our crib and our infant stuff. We need to now repurchase all of that. It was news that if it was true, and it was, hi Theo, where are you? Hey buddy. Everything changes. If the event of the resurrection is true, and if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything changes. And this morning, we are going to look at a couple things. And I promise you kids, it will be shorter than an episode of your favorite uh, Paw Patrol show. We're going to look at the reality of the resurrection and the ramifications of it. And I want to give credence to the question that many of us ask, and maybe if you aren't a follower of Jesus or you don't believe in Christ, that's fine, and we all go, really? So we're going to look at some evidence behind it and what changes if it's true. First, the reality behind the resurrection. I fully acknowledge that it is impossible to give an airtight argument for the resurrection. That's just not possible for us 2,000 years later. But there's so many things in the account and in history that point to the resurrection being true. And the good news is that Jesus welcomes our skepticism. Jesus welcomes our question. Jesus welcomes our doubts. He meets Thomas with his scars in that place. And we have to recognize that faith is involved for any kind of belief system. If you are in this room and you're happy because you believe the tomb is empty, there's faith involved in that. And if you're in this room and you don't believe in the resurrection and you, you know, kind of identify with Esqueleto from Nacho Libre and you go, I only believe in science, that's fine. But we all have to acknowledge there's faith involved in that too. And whatever belief system we subscribe to, there's faith involved. What we can all agree on is that Jesus was a really big deal, if not the most impactful individual on all of human history. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her, in her book, Is Easter Unbelievable? She says, Jesus never wrote a book, he never raised an army, or ruled a realm, and yet he has become, by any measure, the most influential person who has ever lived. How does that happen? 
He didn't write a book like Shakespeare, Plato, Aristotle. He didn't raise an army like Genghis Khan or Napoleon. He didn't rule a realm like all the rulers throughout history that had a big, all the greats, Alexander the Great and the others that I can't think of, but so you just say the others. Um, how does that happen? Well, he has audacious claims that are coupled with extraordinary events around his life. Even thoughtful atheists and agnostics acknowledge. Maybe you've heard the name Bart Ehrman. He's one of the prominent atheist agnostics. He's been on Stephen Colbert's show. He says this, It's hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to most first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must have really existed, must have really raised messianic expectations, and must have really been crucified. Where we might disagree is what happens afterwards. As we read from Mark 16 in the beginning, and as all four gospel counts uh, corroborate, Jesus rose again three days after being in a tomb that was guarded. He wasn't there. As predicted by the prophets and himself and these disciples that became witnesses of Jesus to their death. There's evidence behind the resurrection. Uh, there's a Muslim scholar, Reza Aslan, no relation to the lion that I know of. <laughs> that was the joke. He says this, one could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deludable mind. However, there's this nagging fact to consider. One after another of those who claim to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths, refusing to recant their testimony. That is not in itself unusual. Many zealous Jews died horribly for refusing to deny their beliefs. But these first followers of Jesus were not being asked to reject matters of faith based on events that took place centuries, if not millennia before. They were being asked to deny something that they themselves personally and directly encountered. And more could be explored. The testimony of the women, the changing of the Sabbath day, and, and there's a few more key evidences to the resurrection. But one of the final ones that we're going to hone in on, and one of the more surprising events that happened in the first century, was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who we know now as Paul. He was a devout opponent to the newly formed Christian faith. And in Galatians 1, that I read just a few moments ago, he claims to have encountered a risen Jesus, and his life and history for the last 2,000 years was altered because of this conversion. And again, we're used to it 2,000 years later, especially for those that have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, read the Bible, and Paul's letters, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't like Christians, and then he became saved, and then he was like a church planner, missionary guy that made a big impact. But, but just how big of a deal was it? Neil Shenbai says this, this event is psychologically surprising. It would have been as unexpected as Richard Dawkins, the vocal Oxford atheist, suddenly announcing that Jesus appeared to him in his study and that he was now a Christian. We might think he was crazy. It would be hard to deny that something extraordinary had taken place to bring about such a complete reversal. 
In fact, the conversion of Paul is even more surprising than the hypothetical conversion of Dawkins, given that Paul embraced not a world religion with billions of followers, but a despised, persecuted religious sect with no power and few adherents. Therefore, anyone who doubts the resurrection must provide a plausible account of why Paul underwent such a dramatic conversion in such a short period of time. And so again, to go back to the beginning, faith is always involved with any belief system. But when we look at the re resurrection, there is a lot of good evidence for it being a reality. At least for this one, Paul, who pens this letter to the churches in Galatia, he staked all of his claim in Jesus being risen. And so if the resurrection is real, what then are the ramifications? If, if the resurrection happened, then what does it mean? We're going to look at a few from Paul's intro here. The first ramification that we've kind of dipped our toes into a little bit already is that he says he's an apostle through Jesus who raised him from the dead. And what that means is that in the resurrection, there is a transforming power that is available for people. That in believing in Jesus, there is a radical transforming power that takes spiritually dead people to being spiritually alive people. Not just morally bad people to morally good people, as we often kind of reduce it down to, but spiritually dead people to spiritually alive people. And if we take a step back and examine our own lives in the world as it is today, is that not what the world needs, is transforming power? It, it, we live in a world that is increasingly full of information and knowledge, but it's as lost as it has ever been. The poet T.S. Eliot has a line. He says, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. T.S. Eliot, that slaps. <laughs> all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. We're sorely Lacking in knowing what to do with all of the knowledge and information that we have. Even over the last couple months, if you, like me, have been fascinated with the rise in AI technology and chat GPT that can solve all of our problems, supposedly, um, still yet figuring out how it's going to be useful, um, it, it edited my sermon for me. Um, so if there's anything you don't like, I'm just going to blame that on, on AI. It didn't write it. It edited it. I promise. We as a society, we have all of this knowledge, all of this capability, all of this technology at our fingertips, yet we're desperate and sick. We don't know what to do with it. Why is it that way? Well, again, there's a lot of time that could be taken. I'm going to give you one dense quote from a Korean-born German philosopher, Byung-Chul Han. His book is The Burnout Society. It's fantastic and dense, but he says this. We have been wounded, he's talking about society today, by internalized war. Depression is the sickness of a society that suffers from excessive positivity. It reflects a humanity waging war on itself. The exhausted, depressive, achievement subject grinds itself down, so to speak. It is tired, exhausted by itself, and at war with itself. Entirely incapable of stepping outward, of standing outside itself, of relying on the other, notice it's a capitalized O, on the world. It locks its jaws on itself. 
Paradoxically, this leads the self to hollow and empty out. It wears itself out in a rat race. It runs against itself. So what he's saying is that many of our problems and difficulties are because we're stuck on ourselves and we don't have the ability to change and transform ourselves. Happy Easter to you all. (laughs) This is where the good news of the gospel becomes personal and powerful. For an individual who was dead set on personally destroying the Christian faith, Paul, he becomes the most compelling proponent of it. And what that shows to us, what that demonstrates to us, is that change is possible in Jesus. And that's not the the lie of the prosperity gospel to make you healthy and wealthy and happy, but to be whole, to be safe, and to be secure. There's no guarantees in Jesus that he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, but there is endless promise that he can make you whole that he can make you secure, that he can make you safe regardless of life's situations and circumstances. That flows from this resurrection power at work and has continued for the last 2,000-ish years. So the resurrection brings about a transforming power in our world and in our lives. The next thing it brings about is that the resurrection has the ability to form a family. As you look at Paul's intro, he says uh, he's with the brothers, and in the Greek it's really the brothers and sisters, and he's writing this to a family of churches. You see, what Jesus does in the resurrection is he saves individuals out of darkness into light, from death to life, and immediately and automatically they and we are brought into this family. This idea is largely lost in an individualistic society. Many of us entered into the faith, uh, promised a better eternal home, which that is part of the package, only to discover that there's some awkward aunts and uncles in the mix, right? Yes, I want to go to heaven when I die. Wait, this is my family? Uh, And so we hop from church to church. Maybe I'll get a better family. (laughs) And you're like, oh man, they just all stink. And that's because I, we are a part of it. In a world of loneliness, though, there is a house of welcome that churches ought to be. Don't always live to the standard, but ought to be. And our radical individualism in our personal lives and that has been perpetuated in churches has truncated this to our harm. When we only focus on the individual getting saved, we neglect much of the story. Joseph Hellerman has a book, When Church Was a Family. He says, Paul's point in writing is not simply that God is now my father and I am now his son. God, in Jesus' great work of redemption, was not establishing a series of isolated personal relationships with his individual followers. He was creating a family of sons and daughters, siblings, who are now all one in Christ Jesus. The saving work of Christ, therefore, has a corporate as well as an individual dimension. For Paul, the church is a family. And so the resurrection has power to transform. It has the power to create a new community called the family of God, the church. And finally, the resurrection has the ability to keep God's people grounded and centered. Two words that Paul gives in just about every single letter of his is this idea of grace and peace. 
They're words that are kind of ethereal and floating around, and I use them maybe more often than I should to a point to where they can become cliche, but we have to realize what this is. Grace is a boundless goodness from God that is ever and forever flying towards us at warp speed. God's goodness and his love always coming towards us. It's like if you sit at the ocean long enough to just be overwhelmed by just how big, how powerful, how non-stopping it is, that's God's grace coming towards his people. Philip Yancey says, grace means that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me any less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. And coupled with that grace, that love that God gives to us is his peace. Peace with God, that that broken relationship is now made whole. Peace with one another. Again, people who shouldn't be in the same room together, is, they are being made one. It, it, it takes us from being in a competitive and retributive kind of relationship with God and one another to a cooperative and reconciled relationship. This peace from God is an inner equilibrium that can anchor us in the midst of any storm that life might throw at us. And the reason that that is brought to us is because Jesus is alive. Through his death and resurrection, he brings people into this relationship with these qualities and benefits that are gifted to us. How so? Again, Paul circles back to the best news of the gospel in verse 4. Because of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory now and forever. Amen. N.T. Wright says about these verses, this isn't about going to heaven. It is about the launch of God's age to come, here and now, in the midst of the messy present evil age. For Paul, the new age began when Jesus of Nazareth came out of the tomb on the first Easter morning. The gospel message is all about something that has happened in Jesus, as a result of which the world is a different place. Jesus' followers are summoned to recognize that they now live in that different world and are to order their lives accordingly. And so I hope today as we, you know, put on our button-ups and, and enjoy the pastel colors and all of the chocolates and candies and all of that, that we have the ability, and pork too, ham and bacon and all the, the <laughs> deliciousness that Jesus brought in with the resurrection. That's like, that's way down on the list, reality of the resurrection. Pork's good now. Um, it's low-key gift, but it's a gift nonetheless that we can see today that as God stepped into history in Christ with a kind of love that's so good and so foreign and so gritty and unrelenting with us, that we would be able to enjoy and see that afresh and anew and live into that. My wife shared with me um, a, a poem and prayer from this gal, K.J. Ramsey. She writes, she says, our, our true good shepherd speaking about him washing the disciples' feet, holds dirty feet in his God hands and asks us to let him love us down to the dirt under our toenails. Think about that degree of love entering your life as it is. 
you probably like me and Peter are like, ah, no, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm good with like just the ticket to heaven when I die, but the rest, ah, like it makes me uncomfortable. Will you open yourself up to that level of love? She writes this prayer, Lord, you are the shepherd who is always more ready to serve than we are to be served. Wash us with the water of your welcome. Wipe our imaginations clean of the assumption that we are too dirty to love. May we let you love us down to the dirt under our toenails and the darkness in the crevices of our souls. And so learn the direction of love is down, for you are the God who gets on the ground. And so with an empty tomb behind him, Jesus invites us into this story, into this reality, to live in light of the ramifications of the resurrection. That in trusting in him, he promises to forgive us and set us free. He transforms us. He welcomes us into his family. He centers us and keeps us grounded. Friends, if this good news is true, it changes everything. And the invitation to all of us, whether you've been following Jesus for a long, long time, or today might be that first day, that first step, the promise is to live into that peace. The invitation is to live into that peace, that grace, and take Jesus at his word and say, I'm with him. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for the good news of this gospel that you came You said we could not save ourselves, but you made a way through your death and resurrection. We thank you that 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 event has power to change and transform our lives and our world today, that that event has the power to place us into your family, that that event has the ability to ground us and center us in a shaky world. And so God, as we remember that and celebrate that today, may it lift the burdens of our heart. May it root the needs of our soul into you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.